This episode is sponsored by Appian, a technology leader in driving digital-first insurance transformation. With Appian's low-code automation platform, you can build enterprise apps and workflows rapidly in an agile environment. This episode is sponsored by Exactuals, perfecting insurance payments and the data driving them. doing man good to see you good to see you too yeah it's been a while it's been and apparently you have another book you've been busy yeah I, i'm just always looking for reasons to get you to say yes let's talk oh, so i have to keep writing books so i have the, have the excuse you have my number you can ping me anytime i think that's yeah, right. it's all good yeah most likely yeah but listen most people you know usually in the podcast at the end ask people you know give me your recommendation your life hack that you've been you know discovering and you're it's like well i'm running and i wrote another book but this time it's talking with startups not the insurance companies or both yeah 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 so it's um last time we talked it was the old old school like the incumbents and they're all facing the startup so i was like well let's round out the conversation so i dug in this time with startups which is it's been really cool it's a very different book same kind of structure but totally different because it's not like we did this one thing in this one part of our business. It's like the entire story. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting, really cool journeys and, uh, and lots to take. Yeah, from. Thank you for sending one of the early drafts. I, I hope that it didn't change too much. Now, again, we're recording this at the beginning of June. When are you launching the book? When is like the official thing? Uh, really soon. Yeah. So it's in like just under two weeks. It's two weeks from yesterday from when we're recording. So yeah, the book's locked and loaded. What you read was was pretty mm -hmm. close. Um, I think a, a couple of the companies were still coming back, and my editor was still coming back. But content wise, uh, what you saw was was pretty much finalized. And um, yeah, now it's it's totally locked and loaded. That's great. So more or less, this episode will be published with the same time that you announced the book mm -hmm. and do like the big celebration. Yes, perfect. Open the champagne boxes and going like, yeah. How long did you work on it? Uh, so this one, I think the first interview I did was like December of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, you and I were talking before recording, I had to make one tweak this morning oh. here in June, but the, the majority of the work was through like the end of April, late, um, early May. Um, and then it was like the editing scramble and the audiobook is a ton of work. So that was another piece of, of the scramble, but, um, I, like this is what I do. So it was a full-time kind of, I mean, I, you know, some other stuff going on, but generally uh, this was full-time when I wrote um, my last book while I was still like full-time day job kind of world that took like two years. Cause you know, it's like you find snippets of time here and there to commit to it. Yeah, of course. So it's been hot and heavy for a few months. I can imagine. So basically the book has, stories from the insurance company sorry the insurance companies but yeah they are insurance companies actually the startups yeah yeah some are, are carriers some are mgas mm -hmm. that's the nuance but yeah we can call them all insurers but yeah there's eight of them um there was a ninth who didn't ultimately make the final book but um it's interesting to hear their story i just can't share it but uh yeah like eight eight really different stories from very different situations and, and a mix, like mix of market segments, mix of issues that they faced. And the stories were all, it's all firsthand. Like this isn't me just kind of summing up the stuff you get, you know, from Googling around and reading press releases and, and other articles. Um, actually like got in with the people 
who lived at the founders, uh, you know, or uh, with one of the companies with Next, it wasn't, it wasn't Guy, it wasn't the founder, but um, or one of the founders, it was Sophia mm-hmm. Pograb, who's COO and, and was there really early. So, uh, but otherwise, yeah, like, you know, day one, even before day one, when it was just like, we want to do something different, or we think there's room to, to make a piece of the world better. It's do. funny, we are already diving into all kinds of small, you know, teasers that we can, it's like, you should read the book, you should go buy it because it gives you all the stories, a clear cover, it gives you, but, you know, it's one of the things that I thought about, let's start with the teasers and talk about them. But yeah. then it's then because this is the timing that one of the companies that you wrote about, uh, Global Health, they became sort of a meme uh, yeah. stock which happened like two, yeah, the new game yeah. stop i guess Re- so yeah. again this is the beginning we are uh, june 9th this is when we're recording that so two days ago basically reddit or they've been a little bit pumping it uh, earlier they turned a uh, clover to a meme stock so they've been sh- they just shot up back to what uh, 20, 20 something, something. Yeah. yeah almost 30 good yeah, I think Good for them. Oh, which always we need to have yeah. a disclaimer. Apparently, this is for entertainment, non-financial advice. We are not a financial advisor, so please take everything with uh, for entertainment reasons. That yeah. was my best uh, <laughs> impression of all day. <laughs> it's FTC approved <laughs> for SEC or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Now, but in the book, while we're jokes aside about the. Uh, uh, Clover, in the book, one of the things that really jumped to my eyes when I read the, the chapter about him, it's of course the uh, NPS score. It's such a big yeah. thing for insurance companies. So when a carrier reads that, it can drive home. And what, you know, tell us a little bit about your story. And then, you know, I'll add my question because, you know, it's a conversation after all. Yeah. Well, I think um, it's it, it was interesting for me to break out of PNC. Like I'm a PNC yeah. guy, so two of the cases are not PNC. There's, there's Clover Health and Beam Dental mm-hmm. is the other one, which is an awesome story. Um, really cool founding team, and yeah, I mean it, it's like making dental actually really exciting. Um, so I, I enjoyed that one. But Clover, um, I think maybe I'm biased because I'm a PNC guy, but I feel like health insurance is and i'm sorry if this offends people but it's where insurance gets the worst of its name now is it an insurance um, not to say right? there because i've been doing pnc life but yeah. health always been weird and i'm not really sure it's, that it's, it's insurance it's some yeah. sort of epoxy that takes decision for you but yeah well and i i mean these are all some of the reasons why i think it gives insurance this bad name but and it's not to say every PNC company is perfect. Like, I'm not saying that at all, or that there aren't things that you know we do on the PNC side that also spoil people. But if you think about it, what's your most common insurance interaction? It's your health insurance. That's the one people you know people are are more likely to go see a doctor than to smash up their car or have a tree fall through you know the place they live or get sued you know DNO lawsuit kind of thing. Like it, it's your health insurance, and more likely than not, you know you you see the doctor and then there's some issue on the back end. And it's not to say like there's billing mistakes and, and it all has to be reprocessed, but that happens. But it's like doctor charged X and 
for whatever reasons, and we're going to give you a different reason every time it's not covered or it's not going to apply to your deductible or they charged X, we took $3 of that like $600 bill and we're going to apply that to your deductible, but we've decided for reasons we're not going to tell you or you won't understand. And it's like every single time there's a different argument and it's always really frustrating and basically like you pay all this money and the you know the, the feeling going into every visit is like and basically nothing's gonna be covered it might help the bill come down because they have negotiated rates and that's for me that's kind of all health insurance has become is like i don't want to pay the rack rate so at least my health insurance will have some negotiated rate that they're not going to contribute to but at least they knock off something and then hopefully the doctor's office isn't like and we're still going to expect you to pay the difference there um so that's not a great place to be it's not a great feeling. So, you know, if, if that's the way we feel about insurance, that's not great. And even though we're spending all this money, the insurance companies, the, uh, the insureds, the government, because we're talking about Medicare in particular with Clover, actually in the U.S., we don't have the best health outcomes. We have the highest cost, but we're like number 40 something in the world, which for what we're spending is atrocious. Like we should be far and away the best health outcomes, you know, the healthiest living longest life expectancy with the least morbid morbidities and comorbidities and like all the issues that we deal with in this country shouldn't be for what we're spending. So not a great value, not great outcomes, terrible experience. And um, you mentioned NPS, like I, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but the NPS, the, the uh, net promoter score in health insurance is much lower than it is in PNC. And it's not to say PNC is like the bellwether of all no. industries. Unless you are it's in USA. Um, yeah. right. USA is, AP, is, is yeah. one of the few that actually like, that's an overall mm -hmm. standout. Um, but yeah, like health insurance is really low. So it's not a great setting to be in. Like people are unhappy. It's too expensive and it's not even doing what it's supposed to do. The, the healthcare industry. And that's what Clover, what their intention was changing, not to just be another insurance company or, you know, or clean sheets. So it's easier for us or, or whatever it was. Uh, there are some, uh, kind of socioeconomic and macro level things they're trying to affect change in. And one is access. Um, so that the founding of Clover came out of this healthcare system. So hospital system in uh, more remote, lower income areas where access is, is a real problem. And that's one of the levers that insurance companies have always pulled is we're going to limit who you can see because that's where we've negotiated a rate. And, and they've always sort of conflated quality with network. It's like, well, these are good doctors. Like, no, those are, they might be, but that's not why they're in your network. They're in your network because they agreed to your rate. And I know because my doctor, I actually like, I chose a health plan, uh, same company I've been with in seeing him. I really like him. Um, I, the, their plans changed. I chose a different one that, you know, like I was trying to vet out costs and, and all that. And I filtered it to make sure he was covered. Turns out he's not in network for that plan, but he is for the next plan up. So he's only good if I'm willing to spend this per month. Like it's the same doctor. You work with him on some stuff, not for others, because he agreed to your rates on one of your plans, your more expensive plan and not your others. It's not because his quality is different. Uh, he doesn't treat me differently based on what plan I have. So it's not quality. And we're fooling ourselves when we say that it's access. And so Clover's mission was, what if we didn't tell people who they could see? What if we were open and let them see whoever, but we tried to work in a way that actually changed the outcome. So let's not just deal with what we do in this country typically is like after the fact, after something has gone wrong, you go see the doctor, you know, you, you see them for emphysema or for diabetes or whatever, not for getting your weight in balance and helping you quit smoking, which is what they do in other countries. 
or they try to in, in many other countries. And they incent the doctors to do that. It doesn't work perfectly everywhere, but there is none of that in the US at all. So they uh, they realize like, what can we do to make this better? And some health insurers have tried to do that before where they have experts who consult with the physicians, typically on tougher cases or surgeries, things like that, where the, you know, you, you'll get a consult through the, the insurer to make sure. And it's typically like, do they really need that? Can we, can we make the, the rehab this many days instead of as many as you think it'll be? It's not actually like, oh, how can we get them back on their feet sooner so they're out of pain? It's like, ooh, that's going to be $83,000. Could we do it for 79? About, can we turn the beds? Can we clear the rooms? Can we? And I've yeah. been speaking with a few startups that in the IoT, medical IoT uh, uh, stuff, and for them it was, how can we move them from the hospital back to home and monitor them because that's cheaper? And then, of course, you have a different attitude and philosophy about care. And do we fix only, you know, everything is basically some sort of a churn. And, well, it's an economic churn. But I uh, sorry, I cut you in yeah. the middle of uh, the momentum. No, no, no. But but it's a great but it's a great point. It's an it's an economic maximization, not necessarily an outcome max. And uh, on an individual case, that makes more sense financially. But at a macro level, that makes much less sense. And that's what our health status in the U.S. is proof positive of. We are spending more and we are not the healthiest. We might have optimized that one case, but, you know, it's like the the old adage, like I used to run claims and the adage was like, you don't, you're not profitable by not paying that claim. That's not the magic. So like trying to underspend on a given claim is not the right strategy. So Clover's approach was, you know, how do we do this differently? And the answer is not by having all these experts who are doing like phone call consults and emails and, and whatever. Um, we have modern tools, we need to use them. And so they built this thing called the Clover Assistant that uses AI and machine learning to look at everything going on with a patient and match that with uh, you know best practices and outcomes to try to then flag things to the primary care physician who's supposed to be coordinating care across everything to see, you know, are there things we're missing? Should we be engaging in something? And it may be more care, maybe more spend. You know, like th this, uh, you know, they're dealing with Medicare patients, so typically in older populations. It's like, you know, you've been talking to them about this issue going on with them the past three visits, but they're also diabetic. Or, you know, their kidneys have been questionable, their kidney function. Have you tested for XYZ? And what they're trying to do is, yeah, we're going to spend another whatever on these tests or another visit. But what we're trying to avoid is they're headed for dialysis or a kidney transplant or a foot amputation or, you know, what have you. It's like helping the physician see the bigger picture and spot trends they may be missing otherwise. It's not about like, ooh, you prescribe that. This is $5 less. Can we do that instead? Um, so it's it's interesting, like during COVID, you know, people were going to the doctor less because uh, access suddenly was an issue because hospitals were locked down and it was harder and people were scared and, and all that. So in a sense, that's better for health insurers in that period because their spend went down. But for Clover, it was actually like, this is a problem because that spend is the spend that helps protect us against the explosive spend and the spend that, you know, it's not good for the the patients either. Um, so they looked at it very differently than I think a lot of the traditional carriers might have looked at it. That was like, oh, good, you know, our medical care ratios, like medical loss ratios are falling right now. We're getting a respite, just like, you know, an auto and they were giving money back. It's like, oh, people weren't driving, so they're not getting an accident. In auto, that's perfectly fine. There's no downside to that. It's not like there's pent up accidents that are suddenly going to happen as soon as people get back on the road. Uh, in medical, it's different because you're not getting care for things that are festering. So, um, you know, totally different mentality. And, 
it's just it's a very interesting story how that all evolved. And if you think about it, it takes a lot of time to build up uh, the data to fuel, you know, a smart AI like that. And so that means that whole time you're running without the AI, yet they didn't have any of the levers the traditional carriers were using to manage costs. So in effect, like their model was inherently way more expensive and less profitable or more money losing for several years until the Clover Assistant was ready to go. So think about, you know, how much capital you're going to burn and what it takes from, a, a you know, a, like your, your venture backers, your, your investors to really buy into your vision, to stand through what is going to amount to literally hundreds of millions of dollars spent until you can start to do what you you said you were going to do that takes a really strong alignment in vision um and putting the meme side aside on, on the investor side um that's why i actually keyed in on them it's not because you know they're getting attention and, and some negative press really around that whole thing like however you read it, it it's not it's not a happy story all around um but the core idea of what they're trying to do and why they in particular are unique in being able to do that, I think is fascinating. And that's why I thought it made a great case study. And it, it was, it's really interesting. Um, it's, it made me think about healthcare and outcomes very differently than I used to, as I heard from, um, in this case, their CTO, Andrew Toy, like why are, why is a health insurer the right one to change outcomes? You would think it'd be doctors, but it's really interesting. Like the payer sees everything. The doctor only sees what's in their system right? Like in their health system or their, uh, and, and what they have the time to look at, but the payer gets billed for all of it, even if they don't end up paying anything. So it's like all of a sudden the payer is, is this hub of everything that's going on with that's, you. It, and if they can make use of it, it's brilliant. And that's, uh, then you have the system, uh, what is it? The pharmaceutical benefit system that basically coordinates between the pharmacists, the farmers, the doctors, where the recipes, and that's where you usually you know, get a better understanding of who, what, and how. But that will be a different discussion, maybe for a different day. Uh, one of other thing about uh, Clover that is interesting and also can be a great uh, connection to clear cover is the founder story. And I'm always amazed by the grit and resilience of the founders and how they build that, you know, a venture, especially the capital, while there isn't enough yeah. in selling the dream. And I remember when I was going through a series, uh, let's call it later seed or early A, um, I will shift from, well, he was with Matic, now he's um, with a new health-related uh, startup. Uh, he told me, you know, you just need to go through the motion. Don't take it personally. There will At the beginning, you'll think that there is something there, but just... Take a meeting, there is a process and completely detach yourself yeah. from the feeling. And I'll be happy to jump, you know, to talk about Kyle's uh, process. But before we do that, Clover, you know, there were a couple of, uh, let's call it key uh, takeaways from their story. And it's from yeah. managing the electronic health records so you can have the data. The, the vision and working with compliance. Yeah. What do you think about, you know, or can you give us a little bit of the insights in the book about how to work and to work with compliance and what does it mean for a company? Yeah. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So there, there are three like overarching takeaways in the book that go across all the cases, but each case has their own set of, of learnings. I was really actually struggling with whether this compliance story is enough of its own. So there almost were four major takeaways, but I'm an ex-consultant and we always think in threes. So I felt this like law that I have to stick to three. Um, but actually the first point is about diversifying like the thinking and the skills and the, and the quality and the type of people on your team. Um, and that's actually where the, can, the compliance story gets buried into is, is one of the key things. But this was recurrent in pretty much every single case where, um, like, you know, having grown up in the industry, I know most carriers, not all, and I've worked at some carriers who do this really well, but most carriers, compliance is like, it's the last stop on the train. It's the thing you kind of want to avoid. They're going to tell you no. So you need to make sure that your executive is bought in and is going to stand by you so you can do it anyway. Um, it's difficult and you want to like, it's just, it's not, it's not looked at collaboratively or strategically generally. And again, there are exceptions and I'm, I'm lucky to have been able to at least work at one who, who did that really differently. But in most of these startups, it suddenly became this strategic, um, strategic advantage or driver of strategic advantage because they embraced compliance early in their journey and early in their process in anything they do so that they had they looked at it as like, what if this wasn't a fight? Like, what if this unlocked things for us? What if this actually made it easier instead of being that pain we are going to have to deal with at some point? And if you think about a startup, they don't have the room for compliance to be a holdup or uh, go back to square one and redesign because they run out of runway. And uh, Jim Albert in, in Thimble's, uh, Thimble, sorry, uh, Neptune Floods case study talked about this. Um, whereas actually his investor, Trevor was the one who he had come from the banking side and it started a regional bank and knew like from experience, compliance is critical early on. And Jim had it on his roadmap, but figured, you know, we need to get further along and closer to being live and, and all that. And Trevor's like, no, this needs to be built in from the start. And what it's enabled them to do is not have to rework because the regulator said no. So they knew upfront what they needed to work through and work around. And that's that compliance mindset is a part of their strategy, their product design, their rating design, even their systems. So like they can release new rating algorithms or, or new adjustments to their rating plan really like in a matter of single digit days. I don't know carriers who can do that, but it's a big part of it is because they've designed their filings and their approach and their um, like everything about it in a fashion that it's going to be compliance. So they don't need to worry about that. And Jim said, like, if we had gone down the road and hired compliance, when I said to, or when I thought we would, we'd have to go back several months and no one has the runway for that. An existing carrier probably does. They've got other lines of business and, you know, capital and all, and all that, but a startup, like you're gone. Um, and so you see that story repeating itself thimble. Uh, that, you know, I mistakenly said Thimble with Jim, but Thimble is this episodic and subscription-based small commercial insurer, uh, MGA in this case, working hand-in-hand -hand with Markel as their backing capacity and fronting carrier. They they actually had to change the regs because regulations go from 12.01 a.m. to midnight, 365 days later, unless it's a leap year. So there is no conception and they want it to be admitted because they really want to be close to the customer. And, and, you know, that's an admitted kind of market. So you can't just come in ENS and think you're going to win. Um, that was critical for them. So how do you follow an admitted path where the regulations explicitly bar you from doing something that's four hours of photographer coverage while they're shooting this event? So you can't do about, that. You know, it's funny enough. So you mentioned a few things here. 
Uh, so Jim uh, from Neptune, he's going to be, I think that we already, he's going to be one or two episodes before you. So we have okay. him. It's the second show where that's happening. Yeah, it's, you know, it's on purpose. Every time it's like, you know, yeah. Jim is making sure that every time that you go on a show, he will be before. So he can, yeah. Yeah, he's just he checking it out for yeah. me first. He's, he's a great sure scout and a great guy. He has his yeah. own podcast and he lives the life in Florida. Yep. So, uh, yeah. You mentioned a few things here that maybe will help the audience. What does it, what does it mean to be admitted versus not, not admitted? So give us yeah. a little bit of in a short one-on-one. -on -one. And what is the significant, or sorry, what is the role of a fronting company? Because later on, I would really like to understand better, you know, from ClearCover, they had a little bit of challenges with the fronting companies. And you exactly. talked about yeah. now, Markel, being the fronting company. So it will provide people a little bit of orientation if they are not familiar with those terms. Yeah, no, and it's a good question. And actually, I, I, uh, there's an aside in the book where I describe this because we're dealing with two very different constructs for these insurers, like in, in annoying air quotes, because some are MGAs and some are carriers. And so what does that mean? MGA, MGU, managing general agent or manage, managing general underwriter. So basically, um, a couple of things to lead up to that. So an MGA or an MGU, I'm just going to say MGA to, to sum it up. It's, it's kind of like, it's a broker who can create their own products and they can do the pricing and, and depending on their partnership with the carrier that they work with, they may actually do everything except the capital. Um, so, uh, they, they, it's, it's like a capital lightweight to start an insurer because you don't need to have the statutory capital that the states will require of you to support the underwriting you're doing. So you lean on someone else's capital and their licenses. Um, what that means is you need that someone. So you need someone's licenses and filed rates and forms and all that, that you are basically operating on behalf of. You have, uh, you've been delegated authority to do that. Um, that someone is called a fronting carrier. So it's, a, it's an insurer who has licenses and has the right to file products or has filed products already that uh, basically extend that right to you. Um, and so we talk about that in a number of these cases where when you're working admitted, and I'll say what that is in a moment, uh, you have a fronting carrier who is a licensed admitted carrier in the states that you want to write in that has products and forms and paper, uh, as it's referred to, that you're writing on against their capacity. Then you also have a reinsurer sitting behind them who may take some or all, generally it, it ends up typically being 100%, but it's something close to that, of that risk that the fronting carrier put up, they then pass on to the reinsurer. So you end up needing effectively two carriers to back you if you're an MGA. Um, for those who don't know, the reinsurer thing, you will almost definitely need that as an insurer, a full, full stack carrier Regardless, every insurer has reinsurance. There are no reinsur there are no insurers who go hundred percent on everything. So that's not that's not foreign. You'd still end up with that. But so you'd still have one insurer backing you. But as an MGA, you need two. Admitted versus not admitted or excess and surplus. Um, the difference here is a regulatory one. Um, and some other some other nuances to it, but it's whether you are admitted to uh, as a licensed carrier in that state which means you are subject to all the rules and regulations, but there are benefits to that also. So yes, it's more constraining in some respects because you have to follow this rate plan and these forms that you put in. You can't do whatever you want with rating and, ooh, this feels really unsettled to us, so we're going to jack up the rate. 
You can only do that within the rate plan according to the rules that you file. But there's taxes you avoid, there's process and procedure and overhead that you avoid. Um, it can be easier to get capacity and it allows you for a more direct relationship with the customer rather than having to rope in several more players to uh, effectively write that. So risk. I assume, yeah, so I ass yeah, so, sorry. So I assume that Timber's motivation was basically those benefits. So how did they, you know, they insisted of being admitted in the different states that they operated with, and that's why they took yep. the longer route. How, why, what was the, well, so if you think about the consumer, what are they buying? So right now, if they're buying coverage, they're buying generally in that space an admitted product. You think about your auto coverage, your home coverage, those are all admitted products. Um, are you going to suddenly be willing to work with a company you don't know that's ultimately putting your risk in London, that you're paying these extra taxes on and multiple different distribution uh, distributors, like brokers, wholesale brokers, London brokers, et cetera, um, to take on that risk, that that's, it can be cumbersome. Um, you don't typically see that except for harder to place risks. So like talked about Florida coastal, um, hurricane exposed, expensive houses often end up being written into these high value, high risk homeowners books that end up back at London where there's much more wind capacity. Um, but if you're like, you know, you've got a house in Ohio, there's no reason why you would do that. You get it from, you know, list off every insurance company you'd ever think of in the US that's writing home and auto. They're all admitted pretty much. You know, State Farm and Nationwide and Travelers and Allstate and whoever. Um, so for Thimble, the space that they're writing into or they're, they're trying to compete on, that's all admitted. So it's GL and it's BOP and it's um, professional liability. Like these are, all, I mean, that's the space I came from at Hiscox. Like, it's admitted products and that's how they're bought and how they're sold and they're sold direct. Um, the economics of it, it's hard to compete when you have much more distribution uh, and process and taxes when you're competing against an admitted product, the admitted's gonna be cheaper. It's pretty much a given because there's things it doesn't have to carry. Um, the flip side is like Neptune who's working in flood, that's not a space where the admitted market has done anything or been able to do anything because it's really high exposure, um, very low frequencies. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, the losses are pretty substantial. And effectively, the only player is NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, which is the federal government. Um, so, you know, you can't get flood coverage from your homeowner's carrier. You can get some types of sort of flood coverage, like some pump backup, um, but that's different and it's much more limited. It's not going to pay for your whole house if your house is flooded. And I've had a flood in my home, so I got to see that firsthand. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. So that is a non-admitted product and everyone who competes in that space. And now there are a few options. Um, they're all non-admitted and there's good reason for that because it's really complicated. It needs a lot of flexibility and there is not local capacity in the U.S. to support that kind of risk other than the government. I mean, I should say something. If the only one who's doing it here so far has been the federal government, you know, think about what they have resource-wise. Um, you know, it's there's a reason why you're not seeing that. So that had to go ENS. But um, what Thimble's doing is super bread and butter, small commercial stuff. There's no reason why that needs to call on such complexity. Um, so it needs to be admitted. And Markel admits, uh, that was the right answer. Even though it made things harder up front, it was absolutely the right answer was to do the hard work, to take on the compliance burden and process. And actually they built 
really good relationships with regulators who, um, you know, the Thimble was telling me like they actually get a heads up from some of the regulators. Hey, we saw this happening. We, we thought you might be interested or this might be useful. Like, I don't know any carrier who's getting like a heads up from regulators on useful or insightful information. It just goes to show the kind of relationship that they've been building. I think that's brilliant. Like, that's a huge leg up. So, although we already gave uh, Jim a shout out, we'll do that again. Because w one of the things that I really enjoyed about his vision, and you already covered most of the things that he had to face building the, the MGU and his business. His vision was that, you know, you need to buy insurance, this complex insurance in one click. And I was very yeah. surprised the fact that you cannot get a quote and bind that type of insurance at this at this stage, you know, we already passed that. It takes weeks. We already, I, yeah. in my mind, it's like, okay, it's like, what's new? Or maybe because I've been right. talking to a lot of startups and it's like, yeah, it completely makes sense that you can buy. All the tools are Everything there. is there. Yeah. Why is that such a struggle? Yeah. I live outside of Boston. Right. My town has never flooded except this one event. We had torrential rains. And Gilad, I, I was like, Ooh, I don't have to get the cars washed. I put the cars <laughs> in the driveway. I'm like, sweet. I just saved like $14. Little did I know. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I need a new car. Does it cover? No. Why? Because it's from rain instead of from uh, the sea. And then you have all the different exclusions yeah. and it becomes a nightmare. By the way, how did you solve yeah. it? Or did you? Uh, savings. savings. Yeah. And, and I, I did a lot of, so the cars were fine. Uh, I walked into our basement one morning. That's like, like that's where I like work out and stuff. And, uh, the carpet was like wavy and shiny. Uh -huh. And I thought it was just my eyes were glad because it's like five in the morning. So I'm like rubbing my eyes and I step Blech. down and my leg goes underwater. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. I could have been electrocuted, which I didn't even think about, but I'm lucky. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, had a remediation team come in and they ripped stuff up and they sucked the water out. Uh, luckily, because I was up early, I got ahead of a lot of other people who called. So we got, you know, we got a response, whereas other people had to wait days. And then um, I took on a bunch of the labor myself and had a carpenter that we'd worked with before. And um, yeah, it was, it was rough. And we're lucky it was only what it was. But um, that was, was not fun. Not fun at all. Now, you know, so you wake up at five yeah okay why good job it's like i wake up at seven but still it's uh... well and it's 10 for me when you wake up um so i i've worked for brits for like 10 years not anymore but i did so i was used to you know kind of starting early to because like global teams so you know you've, you've got stuff coming in from the uk early um and i i'm a morning person i always have been and i like to do a long workout so i get up early get all that done before the rest of the world w wakes up. And that's always worked out really nicely for me, um, except that one morning, but <laughs> otherwise <laughs> it's been pretty good. Now, do you still do Ironman marathon stuff like that? Or is that, uh... Uh, I'm not training for anything right now. I hope to do another marathon. I've not done an Ironman yet, but that is my goal before I die is to hear those words, um, that you are an Ironman, but we shall see. Well, that's, yeah, that's the only thing I'm worried about is like, I might be ready for it, but I don't know that all of my body will be, we'll see. Let's talk, let's talk about clear cover. Why? Because we can talk about Kin, but yeah. we already mentioned the, the fronting company and I, and let's use that yeah. as a, as a very forceful segue because 
when you tell their story, which is a very interesting to see that insight, usually we don't get that insight or the ability to see what's going on or the backstory of the founders and how they build it and pitch it. They're the problem of getting yeah. a fronting company. Yeah. Why? It's, um, and it's not unique. So whether it's a fronting, and th so the second takeaway is about how strategic you make your capital. And, and this is a really good example of why it matters. So stuff falls apart, deals, you know, look good and then they break down. And there's a number of examples of that throughout the book. Pretty much everyone has faced that um, in one way, shape or form or another. Um, so for clear cover, they were doing, uh, their initial conception was embedded insurance and auto in particular, and they started in California, um, which is like kind of to the thimble point, like take the hardest thing you can take, hit that first. Cause once you do that, the rest should be easier. Um, California is a tough market and not easy to get capacity for it. Uh, so, you know, to line up a fronting carrier who is willing to take on the risk. And, and there's some things about the California market in particular that increase the risk for a fronting carrier. Um, that we don't need to get into, but uh, basically it's it's harder for a fronting carrier to separate itself from a book of business in California over time than it would be in another state. And so if that book is really bad, that fronting carrier gets stuck with it a lot longer. And actually the MGA is clear. So like clear cover wouldn't have a problem, um, but the fronting carrier would. And it's not really an issue for the, uh, for the reinsurer per se. So in particular, not great for the front. Uh, so they had a, a lot of trouble getting fronts to agree. And actually like one of them, they met for breakfast in Chicago and they told the guy his idea, their idea as uh, Derek and Kyle at clear cover. And he, he just goes, not going to happen. Now let's try to talk about something else and enjoy breakfast. Cause he still want to have breakfast. So like they went about the rest of the breakfast, but couldn't talk about the business at all. And to be fair, like it was really early on, it was like two guys with a PowerPoint deck. So would you back that in a state? Like, you know, that sounds crazy. Um, so they get a front and no, probably not. Um, and then like, if breakfast looks good, like why lose that? So, so, uh, they get the front end carrier, they, they do get one lined up, they have their reinsurer lined up. Um, and then that really set them up for their fundraising. Now they, they're interesting cause they were sort of birthed out of AmFam. Um, Kyle and Derek had been at AmFam Ventures. This was a conception inside of AmFam Ventures, but AmFam, um, couldn't commit, wouldn't commit to making it happen internally. And there's a lot of good reasons, although not what Kyle and Derek wanted, but good reasons why AmFam couldn't and wouldn't do it, uh, which they conceded was the right thing for AmFam at the time. I think probably today with other things in place, the company, they probably could have pulled it off, but back then it wasn't the right call. Um, so they pitched leaving AmFam to set up this like arguably competitor of the company um, only to have AmFam's backing. So it's like, not only do we want to build a competitor, we want you to pay for it. So, but they said, yes. So AmFam invested and, uh, and let them go off. So they had AmFam, but they needed other investors. Um, and uh, they, you know, on, on the back of getting the reinsurer and the, the fronting carrier, um, they were able to land a lead investor, this guy, Vic Pescucci, who was at a company called LightBank Ventures at the time. He's, he's since moved on. Um, and Vic was really bought in and a really good challenge to them. And he pushed them and... Uh, most importantly, he understood and bought into the vision of what they were trying to achieve, which became critical because right before the deal closed uh, for their funding round, the front end carrier pulled out. And that's really complicating because <laughs> they have their reinsurer lined up, but there's nothing to reinsure. They have all of their investors lined up, but there's nothing to invest in. 
Um, so what do you do now? And they don't have a product because they need the front end carrier to be able to have a filed product in the States. So there's nothing they can do to go live. And of course we cannot name names. Uh, it, it, so. Right. And, and to be fair, like they didn't even do that offline with me. One of the others who had a difficult fronting relationship did, and I just didn't of disclose course. it. No. Um, but yeah, they were, you know, super respectful and they, they understand why. It, again, there are a lot of these moments where it's like, that's not the answer we wanted, but we do understand why they had to make mm -hmm. it. Um, Vic, you know, they called him to break the news and he's like, you guys will figure this out. We'll, we'll just put the clothes off, you know, like, how can I support you? But it was, he stood by them, which it would have been easy for him to be like, okay, bye. You don't have a business anymore. I'm going to waste my time with you. I've got, you know, how many pitches that I could invest in that all look good. So, you know, they, that's, that's a really critical point of, uh, of your capacity standing by you, your, your capital standing by you. Now, funny enough, um, that guy who, who, uh, wouldn't talk anymore about business at, at breakfast happened to be coming to town. They, they heard through their reinsurance broker that he was coming. So they reached out and they're like, let's meet in the bar downstairs in our building, uh, you know, over like rolled gold pretzels. Uh, now they had more of a story because they're the reinsurer, they had the investors. So it wasn't as flimsy, if you will, as that initial breakfast conversation. And he listened and he was like, all right, let me take this back. And they ended up saying yes. Um, but that, that only could happen because Vic stood by them, the reinsurer stood by them, their other investors stood by them, and they were able to plug that hole. But that was a complete make or break life or death moment. And you read these cases, they all face stuff like this. It's not unique. Um, the question is like, how do you survive it? Because, mm -hmm. you know, like this is startup is. life. There's a constant, and, and Kyle said that he's like, the nature of startups is risk. It's risk. It's easy. Everyone it's risk or it. sometimes it's luck. So to get your ducks in a row, it's super yeah. hard because, you know, yeah. for the, the solution of the fronting company, there was a very clear ask. We need the fronting company for this specific condition. So then it becomes, okay, how many people, how many fronting companies can we talk with for these specific conditions and how many, well, we just need one to answer yes, right? Right. But when you start and everything is up in the air, you need someone to bite first. And that's one of the biggest challenges for founders. It doesn't matter if it's insurance or not. In insurance, the challenge is that you have yeah. more small moving parts. Actually, they are not so small. They are huge uh, moving parts that you need somehow to capture all together and someone to create that, you know, that gravitation and that pulling force. Right. They have yeah. a very interesting story and you already answered one of the questions that I wrote in my notes, like, why California? Why? It's like yeah. everyone is starting somewhere else. It's California. Yeah. Yeah. Did they provide more information or it's... just because they said, yeah, we no, are they crazy. And, uh... <laughs> um, they did say that and then laughed and said, no, it's, it was a hard, we knew we'd have to do it at some point. So why put it off? Cause if you can solve for that, the things you build for that really tough situation, a lot of that should be leverageable elsewhere. And that's true. Um, part of it was this embedded notion, their main partner that they were launching with, that's where their business was. So if you have a distribution strategy and it's, it's based in a certain place, like you have to tackle that. Um, you know, and there were other reasons as well, but it was, it really was like, we knew we were going to have to do this. Uh, we needed to make a meaningful start. And that means like, there is no more meaningful scale wise market in the U S 
And you do see a lot of people start in Texas because Texas has some regulatory, um, like there's some easier regulatory pieces to it. And actually you see a lot of them who then pull out of Texas because there's other complexities that you don't necessarily catch right off the bat. And, um, and I think that's easy. That, that's interesting. So like it, the other reason why you crack California, then you've got a bit of a moat because even if everyone else is trying to crack it, it's still going to take them a while and it's going to be difficult. So you do have, you've got some space once you get in there and they recognize that. Now what's interesting is their strategy with other states. Um, they were like, you know, we'll get the hard stuff out of the way and then the easy stuff. And they, they talk about the timing of when they filed, especially when they're starting to set up their actual carrier to move from being an MGA. Um, different approvals take different amounts of time. And they didn't necessarily think through what that sort of go live would end up looking like. And so it created like a reverse hockey stick. Like they got the easy ones done first and the quick ones. And so they had this great initial story. And then the slow ones started to hit or started to, to be slow. And so they had a lull and, you know, as you're trying to get like, they needed future investing rounds and that that's a thing. That's a complication you have to explain. Oh, your business was on fire. And then why is it suddenly stalling? Why aren't you growing like you were before? And it's like, well, now we're waiting because we need these other States to turn on. But not only do you have to explain it, but you have to hope they give you this space to explain it. Cause a lot of them just feel like, Oh, we should have invested a year ago when they were still growing. Cause now it's, it's junk, right? It's like, it's slowed down. So clearly they're not doing that well. Um, so they won't even give you the time of day. So that's the, and they, they said like, we learned that lesson that we probably should have looked at uh, kind of scheduling our filings differently so that we didn't have this like drop off a cliff, you know, it's an exaggeration, but sort of a drop off a cliff in, in growth that then recovered. And now congratulations to them. They raised series D they did the uh, 200 million in the last round. And most likely in yeah. the next year or two, they will need to do or spec or IPO because once you reach that point, there is the, the amount of capital that you need to operate. And I imagine that one day they would like to be a full carrier maybe, or do the hippo thing and buy their own fronting company. But yeah, I mean, they already have, they already have oh, a they carrier. Have. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that's what the delay was. It was it was actually the licensure of their carrier, um, and they were still an MGA in California. Gotcha. I'm apparently I am behind my reading. No, but so there's there's a whole conversation about the mm -hmm. capital then, um, because you you need all the statutory capital, and that's not that's not a great investor story. The VCs don't want to just hand over like here's thirty million dollars to sit there and do nothing. Yeah. Um, so you see like there's debt vehicles that, that some people use, but um, if you think about the discount of your valuation that you're going to have to give for that and the amount of uh, equity you're going to have to give someone to put that much capital at such a low effective return, um, it's not a great way to, like the way to fund your statutory capital is through your operations, but startups don't kick off enough cash to support the growth. So you're going to have to seek outside funds, but it's it's just really... Uh, difficult tension is how do you do that without just like here's 80 percent of our company because that's what the numbers suggest we have to give you to get that much you know that much capital so it's it's not an easy thing at all it is really hard um to do it you know even though i think we've it seems like we hear about them all the time oh here's a new insurer that's starting up a lot of them are mgas initially and that's the reason why because you don't need the capital and you can prove your model before you try to sell part of your company. So that increases the valuation so it can support more of that 
um, you know, that outside capital. But um, it's actually incredibly hard. And there's there is talk about the the third takeaway is all around like finding a real advantage. Um, there's some really nice moats that automatically get built as you succeed. There's some that you need to build, but you must have them. It's not enough to just be new. And I feel like there are some out there that that was kind of their story is like, oh, we're a clean sheet and we're like good marketers and we're funny and we're making fun of insurance or like, that's fine. Um, but that doesn't ultimately win. Like we don't, we don't just need another insurance company because at some point your sheet's not that clean anymore. So that can't be your advantage that you were new because someone else will be newer. So what are you really building to differentiate yourself? So I don't wish to expose the, you know, to cover the entire book because people actually need to buy it and read it themselves because especially yeah. to really enjoy all the details that you covered. So before we say goodbye, <clears throat> sorry, because we are already talking for about 50 minutes. I know time passed so fast. Yeah. What I, I'm telling you, insurance is interesting. Every time that I go to a party, well, pre-COVID, although I attended my first birthday party recently outdoors, um, you know, people hear that you're in insurance, you start a conversation. And then you find yourself talking about insurance or insurtech, and it's like, you know, super interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I would really like to get you, you know, before we say goodbye, let's more talk about the lessons learned from Kin. Because you talked with them and it's very interesting in terms of their capacity, their strategy and their, and their background yeah. story. So if you can give us a little bit of, you know, a teaser about that part of uh, that chapter. Yeah. Kin, um, Kin's different from the other cases in that uh, most of them are like, they did this and that, you know, it was really hard, but then they saved the day and it was great. And they, you know, thank God they did things this way and it worked out. Um, you know, even when the front end carrier pulled out or whatever, um, Kin, I think is the negative example. Um, and it's not, it's not that they're negative. I actually, like, I recommended my mother get, get insurance from Kin, um, and they're super happy with it. So it's not a knock on Kin, but, um, you know, I talk about the relationship you have with your capacity and how critical it is to be open your, your capital, your investors as well. Like, you know, the story from clear covers, like you needed them to stand by you and with Kin, um, there was definitely, I think, a lot of a presumption on both the part of the front-end carrier and on Kin on what the other was doing. I think for the front, it was like, these guys are so annoying. All they're doing is things that you can't do, and they need to stop and stop bothering us. Um, but didn't really understand why. Like, why are these guys constantly pushing the envelope? Well, if you really understood what they're about and what they're trying to achieve, you not only would understand that, you would expect that. And you wouldn't have signed up unless you were there to help them through that. From Kin's perspective, they just saw a roadblock constantly. Everything we asked for, we were told, no, that's impossible or that's illegal. And, and they finally got to saying like, okay, well, show us the law. And lo and behold, there is no law. It's just like insurance lore that you can't do these things. The good news is then they helped the front end carrier, you know, see that actually this is possible. Um, but it was always really difficult. And uh, I think they just assumed the front end carrier knew what their strategy was and really understood it. And they assumed that, you know, at one point they went full stack 
So they transitioned from being an MGA to they got their license for a reciprocal carrier, particular kind of structure approved. On that day, their front end carrier found out and shut off their capacity um, and started to renew their customers onto the front's products. So basically like taking their customers, taking Kin's customers. As you can imagine, if your business plan was like, we're going to start to get our licenses in place and we're starting to roll our business over and start to write on it, but we'll still have our MGA. So we, you know, we'll have our business, we'll have some revenue from that and we can transition smoothly. If that MGA is cut off at the knees, um, it's kind of hard to survive. And that's effectively what happened is Kin's, um, Kin's viability as a business was put at risk. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say too much because it's not it's not my story to take liberties with, but very difficult. Um, it really came down to the wire. Unfortunately, they had to let some of their employees go. So it's the only study uh, case study in the book where people got laid off. Um, it was really hard because they've been hiring ahead of the curve because they're growing so fast. And then all of a sudden the curve is made flat. So what do you do with all these people? And that was a really difficult founder moment where you think you're high flying, you're going to succeed and everything's hitting and then you're stopped dead in your tracks. Um, they did work things out with their front end carrier for transition. Um, but you know, from my perspective, not having been inside, it's, it's easy to say like, oh, well, you should have been way more upfront with them. You should have been explicit. You shouldn't have just presumed that and like, yes to all that, but I don't know what the dynamics were. And I don't know what, you know, their front end carrier was owned by their reinsurer. Um, the reinsurer, maybe they had told all that to the reinsurer. And so there's just an internal disconnect, but um, clearly there wasn't a strategic alignment. There wasn't open enough communication in either direction. And it was difficult. It was a difficult relationship while it was going on. And it was a difficult transition. Um, I, I give the guys, the founders at Kin credit, cause they're like, you know, to be fair, we learned a lot with their capital and their licenses. And so it's, it's a respect, like, it's not disrespectful of the front, like we get it. And, and actually like, we wouldn't be here if not for what they did do for us. So it's not a like, oh, we hate them and they're so terrible, but it was much more difficult than it, it needed to be. But I think it illustrates the point of why you need such good alignment. I completely agree. And also I love stories that have a little bit of a failure that you can overcome, not just um, this amazing success, yeah. because those are stories or that it's much easier to understand the lessons learned and then disseminate that yeah. throughout because I really like that at the end of every chapter, you have those couple of key points and, and takeaways. Yeah, foundations for the future. Yeah, Brian, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. It's By the fun. way, uh, when is the book coming out? What's the exact date? That June 22nd. Okay. Yep. So, yeah. And uh, it's it's actually available already in some formats, but that's on paperback and Kindle Drop. The Audible is available already, and the hardcover no is available so already. So people can actually go from, and buy it. Everything from Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, yeah. And people have been, which is nice, but even though the book isn't out yet officially. officially. Um, and, it's, and it's called The Future of Insurance from Disruption to Evolution, Volume 2, The Startups. The first one's been renamed as Volume 1, The Incumbents. So there's a nice mm -hmm. little... You can get them as a series, the green one and the white one. They go brother and sister. Gotcha. So coexist together. the third one will be what? Reinsurance? I'm starting to think about the third one and there's lots of possibilities to it, including whether it's not one, but like these are sort of paired. Maybe there's a like old, old and new kind mm -hmm. of pairing as well. I don't know yet. Right now, I should just focus on releasing the second one, but uh, it, it is starting to brew in my head. And I'm even thinking like, well, what color could it be? 
because I have to know Pink that. Pink and too. yellow. Well, we'll Why? Because they mesh well together, and I love that in my socks. I have no idea. Okay. Nick Lamparelli's already told me I can't make it yellow because his podcast is the Yellow Book Road, and I can't I can't use this color. But oh, um, seriously, we'll see. Maybe you can strong arm him. <laughs> At least the pink wasn't that like lemonade's yeah. uh, slogan for a while. Yeah, so maybe I go with another yeah. color. You'll figure it out. Blue and magenta. I will. Cool. There you go, Ryan. Thank you again. It's been such a pleasure talking with you.